Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to the show. So the Quick Center for the Performing Arts, which is at Fairfield University, is known for trying to get intellectuals, philosophers, thinkers, writers, occasionally performers. Uh, the series is very nominal cost to attend, to turn your own brain on. It costs $10, but it's a very open forum. And if for whatever reason you can't afford it, I'm sure they'd be happy to have you in the audience. Joining us now, and this is called the Bennett Center for Judaic Studies at Fairfield University. Joining us now is Dara Horn, who will be at the Regina A. Quick Center for the Arts on Tuesday, September 19th at 7.30 p.m. And the title of her talk, I thought was a little bit provocative, called In the Haunted Jewish Present on, in parentheses, not, Confronting Anti-Semitism. She is a PhD. She is the award-winning author of six books, novels, essays. She was she is the recipient of two National Jewish Book Awards as well as many other awards, including the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. And uh, basically, she's a brilliant writer. She had received her doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature from Harvard University. She's taught courses in various places and uh, has held the Gerald Weinstock Visiting Professorship in Jewish Studies at Harvard. Dara Horn, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show. I'm so delighted to chat with you today. Yes, me too. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm a little bit daunted, I have to say. I'm a little bit uh, intimidated. I wrote a book called Secrets of a Jewish Mother. It's not in your league, but I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing it. I love to give it to people. They like reading it, but it's not in your league at all. And I'm, I'm, I know that our book club has read um, All Other Nights in 2009 and a lot of fans in my book club for you, which is not a Jewish book club. It just happens to have people in it of all faiths. But you're... you're uh, Terrific writer, Dara Horn, so I'm delighted to chat with you today. Hi. Oh, well, I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dara, um, why the title, right away, you say, on not confronting anti-Semitism? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you think that title is provocative, I actually toned it down because the book that I'll be speaking about, my most recent book, has a much more provocative title, which is People Love Dead Jews. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. Ouch. 
Uh-huh. Ouch, ouch. Um, yes, and uh, you know, it's actually if that. I mean, the reality is, uh, I, and I, oh, and I also have a, I have a spinoff podcast from this book as well, which is called Adventures with Dead Jews. And the, uh, the production team and I are always joking about how we want to make, you know, swag like tote bags, you know, beach towels. No one's going to take your seat at the pool with that. People love no. dead Jews beach towel. Yeah. So I, I mean, yes, you're correct. It's provocative, and my intention is to is to be provocative because. As a writer, what I've discovered, and, and perhaps you've noticed this too, is in your own work as a writer, often the, unco- the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. Because when you're in that moment where you're like, ooh, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, that's when you're about to learn something. So I can tell you that if you know, people find this title uncomfortable, what they will hear about in the talk or read, read in the book is, will make them even more uncomfortable. And that is my intention, is to make people uncomfortable and to bring people up to those moments of their experience that they might not want to confront. And what what is it that people love about dead Jews, Dara Horn? Yeah. What are you getting at? <laughs> well, okay, so the the there's an opening anecdote in this story, um, and oh, well, well, let's frame it this way. There's a uh, the two ideas that run through the book, and we'll I'll discuss in the lecture are that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel good about themselves, and that living Jews have to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. So I'm going to give one story that, that illustrates this. This is something that happened in 2018 at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. Um, this is uh, Anne Frank, of course, this uh, uh, teenage Jewish diarist who was murdered in the Holocaust. There's this office building in Amsterdam in Holland where she and her family were hiding from the Nazis. And that building's now this blockbuster museum. They have millions of visitors each year. Uh, in 2018, there was a young Jewish man who was working at that museum and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. So the yarmulke being this uh, skullcap that religious Jewish men often wear. The museum would not let him wear it to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board deliberated for six months and then relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. You know, I had seen that story in the news, Lisa, and I just thought, you know, six months is a very long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. I mean, oh it's sort of, goodness, and, and that's, that's the dynamic I'm, I'm exploring in this book is this sort of pious attitude we have in our culture about the Holocaust and about, you know, sort of moments of past oppression and how that is not at all reflected in people's attitude toward living Jewish communities today, um, which are generally have this need to are asked in one in many, many ways to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. Well, let me just say a couple of things. Hold on. I, my mind mm-hmm. is racing, too. Number one, <laughs> is it possible that the board was worried Although it's, as I'm saying it, it sounds weird that anybody visiting the Anne Frank Museum would be in this frame of mind. But were they, it was, was it possible that they were worried that he would be the subject of particular vitriol? Because in Europe, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that's been surging there. Were they worried that he would be a target as an employee? I mean, I wish they were, they were being that benevolent. In fact, they said that our position has to be neutral and we want everyone to feel welcome. Everyone except religious Jews, apparently. Wow. I mean, really what the museum's message was is that, you know, we want to tell the stories about the nice Jews, right, the dead ones, not the living ones who are doing, you know, gross things like, I don't know, practicing Judaism. Well, but then here's my other point. Wait, Daryl Horn, here's my other point, though. Hold on. The fact of the matter is that there is a large and growing sect of Jews 
who are of the ultra-observant end of the spectrum, whose entire way of being in this world, uh, Hasidic, not, not necessarily just wearing a yarmulke, but the Hasidic, dress in a garb from the 11th century on purpose in order to attract attention to themselves as Jews. It's one of their missions. Okay, so this is what it's what I want to unpack some of what your comment is revealing. Um, at the end of my book, and also I'll talk about this um, when I uh, come to Fairfield on next week, at the end of the book I talk about attacks on the Hasidic community that were, I write about the ones in the book that happened just before the pandemic, but unfortunately it's continued. Um, there are rampant, uh, violent attacks against yeah, terrible, Hasidic Jews. Horrible, horrible. Absolutely. And here's what I did. Um, there were two attacks in particular that happened in uh, New York and New Jersey um, that were lethal. There were many, many attacks, but there were two that were lethal that were right before the pandemic. One was an attack in a Jersey City kosher supermarket where several people were murdered. Um, and another was a really horrific attack in Muncie, New York, an upstate New York community yeah. with a large Hasidic population. That attack, I mean, unbelievable. Somebody walked into this crowded Hanukkah party with a four-foot machete and started just slashing people. Yeah. And um. one person died of their wounds and people with amputated limbs. I, what I did in this, and I, ta- I write about this in the book, I went through every single news story about those attacks. I could not find a news story that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the attack. So, for example, um, the, in the attack, the machete attack, I remember every single article was like, well, you know, there were these zoning conflicts between the Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents of this town. First of all, irrelevant. The uh, attacker had was from a town 45 minutes away. Probably not really someone concerned about the zoning. Second of all, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? No, we do not. Because you know, I left mine at home before the last school board meeting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what is going on here? And what you realize is these articles, these news articles, are sending a signal to the public, and the signal is that these people deserve it. It would be exactly the same as if you, you know, were writing an, a news piece about a, a woman who was sexually assaulted, and you spent half the article talking about what she's wearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is what we call victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And to your point about, you know, oh, these people are, you know, they're deliberately dressing from the 20th century. But they you know, are. But it is part yes. of what they want to do. And, and yes. that's the problem. Why? I didn't say it was a problem. No, 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 Dara, I didn't say it was a problem. I'm saying it to you because earlier in the conversation, you were talking about, uh, you were talking about whether or not people were, I don't know, fitting in or not fitting in. And all I'm saying is that there is a, there is a segment of the Jewish community that insistently wants to be known for their Jewish faith by dressing yes, the way that this they is, do. This is my point. First of all, wants to be known. No, wants to practice. They're not proselytizing. They're not knocking on doors. Wants to practice their faith in the way they feel is appropriate for them. But, but their faith, and, but, but the is, way that they want to practice their faith is by also, I, I mean, I've spoken to many rabbis. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's like saying, you know, the, um, oh my goodness, there are many fundamentalist Christians that wear very sort of... Um, the women wear these dresses and these bonnets, and this sure. is the custom of the way they yeah, because they want to, and, right, yes, I mean, they want to be known in their community as belonging absolutely. to that community. Yeah. That's all yeah, I'm saying. That's correct. That's correct. And but this is what I'm this is what I'm trying to say when I say living Jews are asked to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. What became clear to me in reading all this news coverage of these murders of Hasidic Jews, anti-Semitic murders in the United States. 
This should be absolutely intolerable. There should not be any but attached to that sentence. And that was what was really shocking to me, was seeing how these news articles were basically excusing these murders. Um, and that was astonishing to me. And here's what I feel it really reflects, and I think it's, uh, you know, you hear it a little bit in, in what you're expressing. I think that we have an outdated idea about how to inoculate people against bigotry in this country. We've often had this idea that, you know, the way we should teach people not to be bigoted is, is to teach them, oh, see this group of people who you might be prejudiced against. You shouldn't hate those people because they're just like everyone else. You know, they're just like me and you. They're just like everyone else. The problem with this is that this belief requires people to erase their cultures because what you're basically saying is, um, you know, I mean, what you're basically asking them to do is what you're basically saying is people only should have public respect if they're if they're just like me, if they're just like everyone else. And then what you find, and here's the real problem for Jewish culture: Jews spent three thousand years not being like everyone else. You know, like uh, I, the way I put it in the book is uncoolness is kind of Judaism's brand. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to, you know, the ancient world where, you know, the whole ancient Near East was worshiping this Marvel Cinematic Universe of sexy deities. And the Jews are like the losers in the school cafeteria where we're like, you know, here we are worshiping our bossy, unsexy, invisible God. Right. I mean, this has never been cool. And, you know, that is and the reality is, you know, that's what I mean when I say people love dead Jews, this attempt to sort of you know, erase differences. You see it in Holocaust memorialization, too. It's like, oh, these people were just like you and me. They're just like everybody else. You know what? I think it's almost the majority of people who were murdered in the Holocaust were Hasidic. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean, does that change what you – I mean, and also, there's the other piece. The Nazi project was not just about murdering 6 million Jews. It was about erasing Jewish civilization. Right. And so what I'm – the question I'm raising is why are we participating in that erasure? And that's what the concern is that I'm raising in this book and that I'll be speaking about next week at Fairfield. We're chatting with Dara Horn, a very passionate spokesperson <laughs> on behalf yes. of uh, – and what I'm very interested in, Dara, I'm, I want to explore further – this idea of how we teach people to not be bigoted. And, you know, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, for example, when you talk about erasing cultures, that one of the things Connecticut was very proud of. I don't, do you live here in Connecticut? You live here? Um, I'm in New Jersey, but, Jersey. you know, close okay. enough. I, I'm, you know, okay. <laughs> been, yeah. been plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. Well, Connecticut passed the Crown Act uh, last year or the year before, 
And the idea of the Crown Act was to make sure that there was respect for black people's hairstyles in the workplace to eradicate the existing bigotry that very often permeates the workplace and has hurt black people who want to be free to wear the hair in the way that they want to wear their hair. And, a great example, yes. Right, right? Absolutely, and, yes. Okay. And so, and so the Crown Act was really about saying, excuse me, uh, we are not going to change. We don't feel we need to change. In fact, we feel you need to respect who we are and to some extent, our culture and our essence, our identity, is exemplified in the way that we want to wear our hair. And we yes. insist that you respect us for that. So Yes, because right? the, the, pro, the older version of this, oh, we're not bigoted, you know, we are you know, open to everyone, but we have this rule that, you know, you can't, you know, wear dreadlocks in the office or something. Right, right. exactly. Yes. And, and in fact, that rule is itself discriminatory because it's saying you cannot bring your whole self in the culture that, you know, that you value is not welcome here. That's what you're saying. So, exactly. So, let me ask you, because I can see that you've given deep and wide thought to this. We're chatting with Dara Horn, who's going to be speaking on Tuesday at the Quick Center for the Arts in Fairfield at 7.30 p.m. I urge you to go. She's a very, very well-recognized, lauded, praised author. Uh, Dara, so let me ask you, when it comes to Jews and the insistent anti-Semitism that appears in many cultures over many generations and has been blossoming uglyly, very uh, in an ugly way in the United States of America very recently, uh, what do you think, number one, what do you think Jews should be saying and acting about it? And what do you think the message should be to people who are not Jewish? Um. First of all, I don't think this is, should be a, uh, the Jewish community's responsibility to solve the wider society's, you know, failures and pathologies. Okay. That seems like a big burden. Well. Um, but I will tell you that I've been in the middle of this. Um, I was part of the White House task force. Um, you know, I was uh, consulting for them uh, for the White House task force combating anti-Semitism in the development of that national plan. Um, I also now am a, a creative advisor to the Weizmann Museum for National American Jewish History. So I am sort of, I am, you know, while I say like this shouldn't be the Jewish community's responsibility, I have been involved in these things. I actually think that it's the same problem um, for the Jewish and non-Jewish community in terms of how to combat this. Obviously, the top priority in the Jewish community is really physical safety. Um, I mean, my kid's camp was swatted this summer. Um, this was has it been really? an ongoing um yeah, I don't know if people, if your listeners are familiar with this. This is an ongoing uh, harassment campaign, um, anti-Semitic harassment campaign against Jewish institutions. It's been going on since July, you know, calling in bomb threats and, you know, active shooter threats and things like that and diverting law enforcement and, and you know, keeping people in fear. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's – and then, of course, then you have actual violent attacks. Um, you have actual – you know, you have harassment and, and all kinds of discrimination, as we've been discussing. So, you know, obviously the Jewish community's top priority is really just – you know, get the security guards into the synagogue so that nobody, you know, people just don't want to die. I want to talk about a larger issue, though. That's something that everybody in the in that's a whole society approach. Um, there's often been this go-to, and I've seen this so many times around the country. In um, when you know, let's say there's an anti-Semitic incident in a school, often what that school will do is double down on Holocaust education. You know, they'll have a survivor come and speak or something like that, and that's sort of what their go-to response is. Here's what I think is interesting. There's, I think it's at this point almost 30 states in the country that require Holocaust education in schools, which, to be clear— Connecticut is one of them. 
Yes, and to be clear, this is uh, I, I, this is absolutely important and essential. I'm not arguing. Again. I, I, I am fully in support of Holocaust education in schools. However, there is not a single state in this country that requires people in school, public schools to learn who Jews are, to learn what does it mean to be Jewish, what is even the slightest basics content of Jewish civilization. Not a single state in this country is required to learn that. So think about what happens to people. And also the other problem is you know, Jews are only 2% of the American population. Most Americans will never meet living, you know, encounter living Jewish communities. Um, so you know, then what, for most Americans, what is their knowledge about Jewish culture? The only thing they know is that Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. Basically, they've only met dead Jews. And then if they are curious about, you know, who are Jews, what are they going to do? They're going to type Jews into Google? So what, what would you find? suggest? Would you suggest that Holocaust education be a deeper, wider curriculum? I don't think it's – I mean, I think that this is a separate curriculum. I think that everybody needs to learn the basics of Jewish civilization. Um, I think that this should be mandatory in public schools. And you're going to say, oh, well, how can you teach this? There's lots of things we don't teach in public schools. Here's the thing. Judaism is foundational to the, is foundational to the history of the West. You can't understand Christianity, Islam, without understanding Judaism. You can't understand Enlightenment philosophy without understanding Judaism. You can't understand the basic tenets of this country, the whole idea of the rules of law. All of this is – you know, Judaism is foundational to Western civilization, and it is erased from our children's education. Like, if you look at a high school history textbook, what does it say about Jews? It says that they were murdered in the Holocaust. That's the only thing it says about them. I think – and I am now uh, – as I said, I'm working with the Weizmann Museum, in, um, which is a National Museum of American Jewish Culture. They're starting to develop um, resources for teachers to, you know, to explore this, you know, to introduce this into their classrooms. And there's many, many ways you can introduce this into a classroom in different types of settings and courses. Um, Part of you know you could attach it to Holocaust education. That's sort of one place to go. Um, but I think that you know that's one effort I'm involved in. There are other um, smaller groups that are involved in you know bringing people into classrooms just to talk about Jewish civilization. And I'm using the word civilization because this is not about religion. This isn't about here's a doctrine. This is about uh, Judaism is a civilization. It's it's a it's a national culture in the same way like Native American cultures are. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, this is a church and state issue, teaching a doctrine, bringing in a rabbi to talk to a class. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about understanding what Jewish civilization is, because that's, people do not understand the very basic things. And um, I think that that's part of what allows anti-Semitism to grow. You know, Dara Horn, um, I, I love listening to your very vital, passionate speaker. 203-333-9422. I'm thinking that the most, for me, the most influential education specific class that I ever took throughout all my public school years was in seventh grade. I took a class and it was an elective and it was called comparative religions. And it was an elective in seventh grade. It was part of my social studies curriculum, but I think somehow it was also an elective. And I learned about Hinduism. I learned about Buddhism to live is to suffer. These are the things I remember. Of course, I'm oversimplifying. We learned about Muslim, the five pillars of faith. We learned about Jainism in Japan and Shintoism. And I don't remember whether or not we learned about Judaism, to be honest. We learned about Christianity for sure. 
But I do think as long as you're bringing up the importance of Jewish civilization, I personally would advocate for comparative religious studies because I think that all people's I think that we as Americans, being so proud of our melting pot heritage, I think it's incumbent upon us to learn that, to learn how different religions express themselves and their cultures, not merely Jews, but certainly Jews in the mix. That's my own opinion. But it was a fantastic well, course. Yes. Well, and I think that, I mean, look, I mean, the country, uh, you know, I think that part of our responsibility is living in a pluralistic society mm-hmm. is to learn about you know, every, all the different groups Everybody. of people who are here. And, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, we're all building a future together. Um, you know, I think that there's been this, and, and as you say, like, you know, there's there's a few different frameworks of which you could approach this. Um, but I just, yeah, I think, you know, the reality is that, you know, this idea that we're going to teach empathy by teaching that we're all the same, I mean, that is, you know, that's erasing people's dignity because that's yes. saying, you know, that could, because then what you're doing is saying, like, we're all the same, meaning we're all like me. And in, and we only we only extend empathy to the extent that this person is just like me. And so what and you're saying is, if we can't recognize the me in someone else, then we lack the empathy. That's what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying is that you know I think that there's that empathy is not enough. What you really need is curiosity, mm-hmm. right? The way to you know the, the way to sort of you know to fight the opposite. In a sense, the opposite of hatred isn't love; it's curiosity. Dara Horn, it's because a pleasure. Because you know, the, the yeah. idea that you're interested, that you want to learn about people who are different from you and, you know, traditions that might be different from yours. And, I mean, that's, you know, I think that there's, that's so, that's going to only be more important in the future in this country. And I think, um, you know, there's different ways that that might be approached in different parts of the country. But I think that uh, we're doing a huge disservice to people if we're leaving that out of their education. I'm so happy you're coming into our community. I'm hoping that the audience is packed. It's going to be Tuesday at 7.30 p.m., September 19th, at the Fairfield University Quick Center for the Arts, which is a beautiful forum, by the way, if you haven't been, Dara. It's a lovely place to speak. Uh, and I want to wish you a happy new year. I don't know if you celebrate whatever I do. You do thank you. I do, too. A happy thank you. Happy healthy. new year to you. And I'm, I'm really happy to get to know you. I'll be reading your books with interest. Congratulations on all your accomplishments and success and uh, keep making your voice heard. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Dara Horn on the Lisa Wexler show. We're going to be right back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic, ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget. Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 